my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it is all that I need. All right. Uh, last week, I just want to reiterate how Jesus is pulling the stops out on these religious people. He's just calling, calling it right down there. He's using these strong parables. Um, I, I couldn't help but see again this week about between verse 45 and 46, how when they admitted that they realized he was talking about them, he was trying to get them to see, and they did, they realized it. And yet, once you even realize that you have a choice, you know, you hear the gospel, you realize it's talking to you, you know that you need it, but you've got a choice. That's why I said to you in that song, he does, he's made it possible, but what do you and I have to do? We've got to come. We've got to believe it. We've got to receive it. And you've only got one of two choices. You either accept and believe it and change, or you say, no, I don't want any part of it. And between those two verses, we saw the power of self. We see how even in Revelation, after the trumpets and the seals and and the skies falling and boulders are falling on people, you would think they would wake up and take notice, but it says they shake their fist at God and the rebellion and the cursing self can choose no and think that they knew he was talking to them. He so wanted them to respond and receive because remember we said last week, everyone has got to be broken. Every human being has got to be broken because of Genesis 3, because of sin. We have got to be broken and realize it's only grace and mercy that buys us back and redeems us to give us all what we've got. But we have got to start that way broken. And if you aren't broken here, it says he will, he will fall on, on us if at judgment day. And instead of broken, where you can put pieces back together, you will be crushed. In other words, no, no chances, no more chances. Um, that is black and white. We need to acknowledge it. We can't pretend it's not there. We can't say, well, you know, I got plenty of time. No, this is for now. And um, so as we move into this, we see him trying again through parables. He says, Jesus spoke and he said this, the kingdom of heaven is like a king and who prepares a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Now, I can't fathom that. If a king invited you to come to the palace for a banquet for his son, you, I mean, you think, wow. I mean, I got to tell you, if, if Queen Elizabeth sent me an invitation to come to a banquet and Henry and William were going to be there and Kate and Megan, I got to tell you, I'd be shopping. You know, I could, it, that is something. And, and I thought of that. I thought, who wouldn't want to come to that? What an offer. What a privilege. What an invitation me, of all people, I don't deserve to come to the king's son's wedding, but he's inviting me. He must think that I'm something special to him. 
you get it? And you think to yourself now, I, I say it, you say it, why wouldn't anybody want the invitation of salvation? Why wouldn't anybody say yes to this? When look at all it gives, why don't they say yes? It just goes beyond me, but it just, again, shows the power of self. If you don't feel you need it, if you, don't, if you haven't gotten broken, if you haven't gotten to the point where you know you need to repent, that you are nothing, that you come naked before him, you have nothing to give. There's nothing you could have done, nothing you could have earned. And so this is how he says, you were invited and they refused to come. So he tries again. He says, go out there again and tell them who have been invited. I have prepared my dinner. He said, go tell them what we're going to have. Maybe that'll make a difference. You tell them that I have, I have got the oxen, the fatted cattle have been butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. And what does, what does everything ready mean? The kingdom has come. Jesus has come. The Savior has come. The gospel is right there for the taking. And you need it. Everybody does. Look at verse 5. And they paid no attention. Now, does that sound familiar? They paid no attention. And where did they go instead? Not only did they pay no attention, they just went about their life. They went to their business. They went to their fields. You know what that means. They considered their own life right now um, in total control of themselves. They call the shots, um, and they want to keep it that way. And I'm, su I'm self-sufficient. Uh, um, they pay no attention I don't care. I don't want it. Um, this world is my home, and I, I have places to go, people to see, and, and uh, mountains to climb, and, and I have got to make something of myself, and that's all I care about right now. I don't have time for this. In fact... They got so mad at the people that were inviting them and they were just being bugged by it. We told, you know, we don't want to come. We're not coming. And it's back to look what they did. They seized his servants who were, who were saying, come. They seized them, mistreated them, and even killed some of them. Now, who are we talking about here? In the Old Testament, even up to John the Baptist, you know, these are prophets that are given the invitation, that are offering them something that they can't even possibly understand why you would want to refuse this. But look, look what the heart of man left to itself, look what it'll do. They not only don't want to come, they want to get rid of the people that make them feel like they should be there. Well, the king was enraged about that. He sent his army to destroy those murderers and burn their city. Now, that's why I asked you, why, what were the consequences in 70 AD? 
you know, God gets such a bad rap. You know, when he, when he so loves us, he loves the lost, and he will do whatever it takes to try to get their attention. What did he, what did he do in 70 A.D.? that tried to get, I mean, all through the Old Testament, you wondered, there were so many times when he handed Israel over to their enemies. I mean, that sounds like an awful mean God to me. I mean, his chosen people, he hands over to the enemies. That's not mean, that's love, because he's trying to get them to wake up and realize that there is no other God but him. And so he would do that to him. It was worth it to hand them over to the enemy. So maybe they would come to their senses. So in 70 AD, actually it started in 66 AD when Jesus didn't do what he was supposed to do for the Jews, you know. He didn't, he didn't set up the earthly kingdom and overpower the Romans. And, and because he didn't do that, by 66 AD, those Jews think, okay, I'm going to take it on myself. I'm going to take it. So they rebel against Rome. Emperor Nero comes back and says, oh, funny. And so he slaughters thousands and in 70 AD, he just takes over the city, burns the city, and destroys the temple. Oh, what a mean God. And yet, look at the parable. It's exactly what Jesus said. And it's try to get, he is not mean. You look at, you look at some of the nature crisis and catastrophes that we have seen in the last years. You see the tornadoes and the hurricanes and the tsunamis and, and the flooding in the Midwest right now. You cannot, you cannot hardly look at that and think, what a mean God. No, it's not a mean God. It's a God that's loving us, and he knows time is running out. Just like Jesus, he's pulling out the stops because he knows his earthly time is running out. And we know that time is running out. Every day is a day closer. And he is trying to say, I will do whatever it takes to try, because this is one thing man does not have control of. They cannot control a storm. And he is lovingly, believe it or not, saying, would you wake up and realize there is a force greater that you need to humble to, ask more questions, get to know me more, take it a little more seriously, because it is not all about you and now. Well, then he said to his servants, okay, how about this? The wedding banquet is ready. But those I invited do not even deserve to come. And we know what he's talking about. He's talking about the chosen people. Remember how the gospel was to go first to Jerusalem and then to Judea and then reach out? Well, because they wouldn't listen, here it is. Okay, go out there and invite anyone. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. Anyone. Did you read that? Those were his words. Go out and you find anyone. So does that look like he's picking favorites? 
does that look like he's picking and choosing who he wants to be there? He said, you go and invite anyone. You go to a Gentile. You go to any nation, any culture, any. This invitation is offered to anybody. I don't think it can be any clearer when he said, go to the street corners and invite anyone. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And they filled the wedding hall. But, verse 11, when the king came to see his guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? Now, maybe you read this fast, but I don't want, I want you to see. The man was speechless. He had no answer here. He was confronted. Now, who is this man? He, he was one that was invited. Now, he is one that thinks he can come on his own terms. Now, what do we know about the wedding clothes? The wedding clothes, there is a proper attire that we can get to heaven with. We, have, we can only come to the wedding banquet if we've got the right clothes on. And these clothes are so important because of I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. Salvation is found in none other. There is no other name under heaven by which you and I can be saved. It is, again, black and white, clear as can be. And that means you have got to be broken. You've got to come humbly. You've got to almost feel that sense of nakedness when you come and you're broken at the cross. And what does Jesus do? He can't wait to clothe your nakedness with what? His robe of righteousness. He clothes you and I with this white robe of righteousness. And that means that only he could put that on us. And someone is going to try to get in there thinking, you know, well, after all, I have gone to church all my life and I have, I have given so much money to ministries and, and after all, I've, done, I've been such a good person and, and I don't care what excuse you want to give, that is this man who's trying to, well, I believe this, but he never really made it his own. He never came feeling broken before the cross. He never took that white robe of righteousness. It was still self-sufficiency that he felt he could get in on. This is how serious Jesus takes this. You just don't waltz into his presence without the right wedding clothes. You can't assume that you're going to get in because you've got credentials up the wazoo. There's only one way you and I get there, and there's only one way we can get the right wedding clothes. Look what happened. Look what, when the king, when the king told the attendants, then the king told the attendants, because the man had no answer, because you know what? He knew. He down deep knew better. Look, at he, he wanted to come but tried to do it as on, on his own terms. So, I mean, you're not talking to somebody stupid and ignorant here. He knew better. He just chose to say, but I'm not coming in that way. I don't want to humble myself. 
I don't want to look like a fool. I don't want I don't want to I don't want to be crying at the altar. No, what would people think if they saw me broken to pieces? You know, it's just, I mean, I could go on and on about that because I think that's just, this is so relevant today. But this is, this is how important the king, he said, okay, tells, he tells his attendant, you tie him. And, and, and I think we saw in the video, this was not easy for Jesus. He did not like this. This was not a, so there. I mean, he, he, his heart was broken because he knew how close this person was, but self just could not break. And there's only, there's only one alternative. There's not, well, you know, you know, you tried, and I'm going to give you some credit for that. No, no, I mean, it is one way or the other. And Jesus felt awful. But remember, if you say that Jesus sends someone to hell, that's not true. Now, he might put them in there, but he doesn't send someone to hell. No one, if someone is heading to hell, whose fault is it? Their own, because they did not choose the, what was offered to them. So it breaks his heart. He said, I'm sorry to have to do this to you, but this is the way I set up. This is the instructions. These are the rules. This is the way the gospel operates. And anytime you think you have a better way to do it or an easier way or who's going to notice kind of thing, I want you to know that attendant, he said, tie him up throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. After he says this, he makes this comment. And again, so many just take verse 14, lift it out of context, and get so misguided with this. And it has split churches. It's caused division, which is so totally a against Jesus' principle when he wants his children in John 17 to get along. This verse, lifted out of context, divides. Now, when you take it in the context of the passage, after what he just poured his heart out in this parable, trying to show the black and white of the gospel receiving or the black and white rejecting. He says, for many are invited. Well, yeah, anyone. Go on the street corners. Invite anyone you can find, anybody. Yeah, many are invited. All are invited. But when he says, but few are chosen, do you really think, in the context of this passage, do you really think that Jesus is going around saying, I like you, but not you. I like you, not you. Do you really think he's picking and choosing? No, the invitation is out for all, but yet few are chosen. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, it just simply means I'm not going to choose those who don't follow the instructions. Anybody who does not break and realize they're in need of a Savior and repent, 
To you, the man who comes in thinks he can get in there another way. I'm sorry, I'm not going to choose you because you didn't follow what I told you. I'm inviting everybody, but those who don't follow the come, you've got to do your part in come. But if you don't come humbly and receive the white road of righteousness, I'll tell you, I'm not choosing you. You didn't do what was required. These are the rules. And now I'm God. I can do what I want, when I want, how I want. And this is, this is the way I set it up. You come just as you are, but you have to come. I'll receive you as you are, but you have to come. Did you love that line where if you come, he'll welcome, he'll welcome, he'll pardon, he'll cleanse. And I love this word, he'll relieve. That means you keep coming to him and you come all tense and fearful and your yabats and you come to him and you hand it over to him. He can't wait to relieve you and take on the burden and, and re, re-emphasize to you that he is enough if you just take his hand. If you are willing to come, he'll welcome, he'll pardon, he'll cleanse, he'll relieve. Why? Because you believe his word and the promises he made to you. Okay. Then the Pharisees went out, laid plans to trap him in his words. Look at the last week. Remember last week I said, you know, if I was Jesus, I think I'd go to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus and get out of there. Get out of here. If I have my one more week, I'd rather be with people who know me and love me and believe in me. You know, I'm like, why do I have to put up with this? But no, he doesn't. In fact, this is where he puts himself smack in the middle. He is not going to give up on these guys. So they come with their, the Pharisees come with their disciples, their disciples, and bring along with them the Herodians. Now, you know, for every time I used to go through this, I would, you know, not think too much of that. His disciples and Herodians. But this year, I thought, I'm going to find out why, why Matthew wrote that in there. Why is it important that we know that these Pharisees are trying so hard to trap them that not only do they bring their own kind, they bring in Herodians. And you know what? Herodians, yep, they're Jews. It just shows so many dimensions of Jews. They were Jews, but they were Greek-speaking Jews who put all their trust in Herod. Thus, their name, Herodians. Can you imagine Jews that speak Greek settled in Jerusalem and put all of their faith in the Herods. Now, you would think that the Pharisees would be appalled, wouldn't you? And they, and, but no, they, they, they gather them in. So come on, let's join together in this. Let's try to get this guy. They're, they're so, you can just, you can almost feel the, well, I'll do anything. And then, and then, oh, I, I hate to be so vulgar, but didn't you almost throw up when you read the next couple of verses? Because you know them, and you know they start this flowery flattery, and he says, teacher, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. And I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask about that. Just so that we know 
what flattery. And I went back because I remembered that word from last year, and it was in Proverbs. When, when Solomon told us about flattery, when, we're, when we flatter someone, Flattery is, and what did you find in Proverbs? You found that flattery is um, a mouth that will work ruin. <laughs> a flattering mouth works ruin. That's the proverb. I looked it up in the dictionary, and flattery, this is, to me, this really said it too. I mean, Solomon was right on when, when he said flattery is going to, you know, the mouth works ruin when it when it comes out with flattery. The dictionary calls it excessive, insincere praise. And then it went on to say, not only is it excessive, insensitive, or um, insincere, excessive, insincere, so lying through your teeth, you want to put it that way. Excessive, insincere praise. Now get this. To further your own interests. That's what flattery is. And boy, can you see that definition right here. But who knows? Who, who knows? I mean, we can, we can, you know, we can fool people. And let's face it, humans like to be complimented and all that. But we know the difference, whether it's a true, sincere compliment or if it's in excessive, insincere praise for your own good. You, you know that. But guess what? The Lord does too. And so Jesus, of course, he knows that they're trying to get him. So when they ask the question, tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So let's try political. Let's try to get him in the political realm. And again, Jesus comes back with the, always the right answer. I am more convinced than ever that when people try to get us, I know for me, I, I, I get this all the time, people try to do um, stumpy or, or uh, they still try to get you. Uh, they still do. I get it all the time. And I'm, I'm so wanting to give the right answer. I so want to give the right answer when they come at me like that. And now I'm, I'm convinced more than ever that I will. I will always have the right answer. I stay connected to him. His spirit will give me what I need. So the way Jesus answers them, we can take confidence that we will have the answer to because he just, he, I mean, look at, he dares call him, you hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? I mean, that had to have been something for them to say, how did he know? And we just given give him all those wonderful words, all these wonderful compliments. Well, he knows the motive. He knows the insincerity of it all. Show me the coin. Show me the coin. So they brought him a denarius and he asked them, okay, whose, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? And they answered Caesar's. And then he came back with this answer. You give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And if you need reminders, Romans 13, if you need to put in your Bible, just so that you, Paul talks about we are to be subjective to those in authority over us and we are to pay our taxes. Romans 13 says it. So this is the policy. You give to Caesars what's Caesars. What's required of you, you obey and you do it. But you give to God what's God's. And 
you know, I know we give to ministries and I know we give our tithe or we give to our church or whatever, but does God really, and we give so that the ministry can continue, right? But does God really need our money? No, because it's all his to begin with. What does God want? He doesn't, I mean, I'm not saying you don't have to give offerings anymore because we know we are responsible to help this gospel continue out. And whether it's in our church or whether it's ministries or whatever, we know we're responsible to do that. However, when it comes to does God need your money? No, but what does he want? He wants you. That's what he wants. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants obedience. He wants your life. Don't you just love that song when I survey the wondrous cross? You know, you get to that line, you know, we're the whole realm of nature, mine. It still would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. But that last line of that song is the kicker. But that love demands my heart, my all. That's what he wants. Oh, when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. <laughs> that same day, that same day. So, I mean, did you notice that? I mean, they don't give in. They don't give up. What a day for that guy. Pick, pick, pick. Honestly, all on his case. So the same day, now here comes that other group, the Sadducees, which to me, that's why I asked the question, they didn't really want an answer because this was the most ridiculous thing at all. It says the Sadducees came, and they say there's no resurrection, but they came with a question about what? The resurrection. So this is getting more, you know, silly by the minute. Teacher... Moses, now we're talking, you know, the Sadducees believe in those first five books of the Bible. Bible. That's all they believe in is the first five books. And it's all about Moses because Moses wrote and, and, you know, so Moses is their main man. Now, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, there was seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now, then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? Oh, I'm sure they thought they had it down. What a question. You know, Jesus walks over to him, you know, and he he puts his arm around him. I love the way Jesus just kind of, and then looks at him straight in the face and says, you're in error. (laughs) You're in error because you don't even know the scriptures. Now, there is. Remember, these are the men who are boasting how well they do know the scriptures. And Jesus is saying to them, you don't even know. You don't know. You're an error because you know what? You don't really know. You might know words. You might be able to quote it. But you really don't know because you wouldn't even ask a question like this. Not only do you not know the scriptures, you do not even know who I am, who God really is, and his power, or you wouldn't be asking this. You wouldn't be doing this at all. 
And then he says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels, like the angels. Remember, we won't turn into angels. We're going to be like angels. And whatever that means, I don't know, but we'll be like them. Don't think you're turning into an angel. You won't be you won't be an angel whether that's disappointing or not they're created beings but we will be transformed into Jesus likeness but we will be like angels whether that means we'll be doing what they're doing I don't really know just that that's what it says you will be they will be like angels in heaven but about the resurrection of the dead have you not read what God said to you I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. Now, if, if Jacob and Abraham and Isaac, if they were dead, eternally dead, he would have said, I was their God. But when he uses that I am, you know, which he does so well, it just shows he is the God to the alive ones, and they are alive. Because why? The promise is, and if you come and believe that promise, that means you will never die. So I am the God of the living. And then in that whole concept, and you know, I know because in our human minds, and this is all we know, there, there's things that go through our mind when he says that that. At the resurrection, people will not marry nor be given in marriage. We're thinking, ah, I'm kind of disappointed about that. Or I kind of, I kind of want, I can't wait to see my husband again. Or I can't, I can't wait. Well, that's all well and good. But what he's trying to get you and I to see is that, believe it or not, as important as, uh, you know, marriage and children and a family, you're part of a big extended family now, and it is not going to be about individuals. It's about him. And the thing is, what do we know about heaven? We will be completely satisfied. That's what we've been promised because it's perfect there. So when things go through your mind, just know that it's a brain that, as wonderful as it is, cannot possibly fathom the greatness of heaven. So how do I, how do I come to the conclusion here? I say, okay, I don't understand it. All I know is that he promised that I won't ever be disappointed there because that word is not in existence there. There will never be a time in heaven that you say, oh, nuts. Oh, I thought it was going to be like that. Oh, I really wish. There's, there's, not, there's not one time you and I are going to say that. There will be no regrets. There's no disappointments. There, that's why even though you might understand that and that in our physical sense we might think, oh, but I kind of want, you know, I, I want our mansion. I want my kids to live next door. And, you know, you just got that all pictured and you say, no, I want you to stretch yourself way beyond that. It's going to be so much more. And believe me, he says, you will never be disappointed. You will never say that. Well, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teachings. Hearing that, Jesus had silenced the Pharisees. Remember, they hated each other. So this was probably, oh, they're saying, woo-hoo. 
He put them in their place. So now let's try. So they come again. The Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert. <laughs> I had a laugh, you know. They picked the, the smarty pants one of all. You know, they picked the expert of the law. And he, he tested with his question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, you know, about this time, before we get into this greatest commandment, we have dealt with hell. We've been in gnashing of teeth. And we have dealt with heaven. In one chapter, we have proven that heaven is a real place and hell is a real place. You can't deny it in this one chapter. And I don't know about you, but this past week, I have been thinking about that 96-year-old lady so much. Can't get it off my mind. And for you who weren't here, last week, a lady came to me and told me that she visits this 96-year-old gal, and she, she's failing, and she's 96, she's lived in Holland, she, um, you know, she lives in a wonderful nursing care facility, and this lady goes and visits her all the time, and she said, this lady just will not believe anything of God. And she said, but this past week, she said, I said, can I just pray with you? And she says, go ahead. So she prayed for her, and, and when she said amen, the, the lady said, well, that's, if that makes you feel better, if that's good for you, you know. But then she said, the lady said, I said, but did you ever consider that maybe heaven, maybe heaven really is a real place? Oh, no, not only do I believe it's not a real place, but even if it was, I would never want to go there because it is so boring and I'm not going to sit around. And then this little 96 frail lady had the gumption. You talk about rebellion. She says, give me hell any day. Give me hell any day. And so I couldn't get that off my mind this week when I was going through Matthew 22, when it's just when Jesus' words himself states heaven is a real place and hell is a real place. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to take a couple minutes, and we've got the minutes. So I'm going to just take a couple minutes and prove to you from Scripture how heaven is a real place, but hell is too. So listen to this. In heaven, the Bible says, and I'm taking everything from the, the Bible, and remember what the Bible says is non-negotiable. And heaven is a place where there will be no more suffering, no more death, no more mourning, no more pain. Who in the world would want to go there? And follow the terms to get there. I mean, when you think of you get all that for just breaking and coming to the cross of Christ and accepting his white robe of righteousness and, and turning over your life to him when he knows better because he's God and he's got a plan that's perfect. I mean, who in their right mind wouldn't want to do that? But let me tell you about hell. We just read in this chapter that heaven, no death, no mourning, no suffering, no pain. Hell, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, when do you gnash your teeth? In, in pain, in intense pain and suffering. 
Now, heaven, heaven, we've been told in Revelation that, that it's a secure place. You're going to not, don't you love that feeling of security? Heaven is a secure place. We're told in Revelation that the wall around heaven is 200 feet thick with 12 gates, with, with one of the apostles' names on each one of the gates. And do you remember what each gate is made out of? One pearl, exactly. Now, hell, hell, the Bible says it's a bottomless pit. So if you've ever had that sensation, and the older I get, that more I dislike this sensation, slipping and falling. I'm so concerned about falling. And hell is a bottomless pit where you are not secure, and you have that sensation of falling all the time. And heaven, on the other hand, in a continuation, you not only feel secure, you feel stable because it's... The foundation is 12. You've got 12 foundations. And when we look close, we're going to see the name of each tribe of Israel. 12 foundations. Hell, on the other hand, is constantly shifting. And again, part of that, that insecure, that unstable, that feeling of falling, that, that never feeling secure and stable. Now, heaven, on the other hand... You, you, we don't, the Bible says we don't need any sun, moon, and stars. We don't need electricity to turn lights on. We don't need any light because the glory of God is going to be all the light we need. Now, hell, on the other hand, we just read it, darkness, complete darkness. Can't see a thing. Can't see a thing, and you're slipping, and you're, you know, that sensation. And then, but now, remember, heaven, on the other hand, we, we talk about banquets. We talk about, you know, even Jesus, when he lived on this earth, did he love to fellowship? Did he, did he love? I mean, look at the feeding of the 5,000. Look at the feeding of the 4,000. Look at how they were always eating and fellowshipping and sharing. We know that in Revelation, we're going to be all, we're going to be a part of the wedding feast. We're going to be around that table of testimony. You t- it's going to be full of fellowship. And this is where that lady, she has been, she has believed a lie because hell, on the other hand, you are going to be so alone. You're going to be suffering. You're all by yourself. Heaven, you are going to be completely satisfied. No disappointment. And in hell, you are going to be never satisfied. You are constantly thirsty. You always need more. To me, this is the ultimate in heaven because I know what it feels like. So do you. When you're walking with the Lord and you know that you are tight with him, you know what that feels like. That fellowship with him is just beyond words. And yet I also know the flip side. When I let go and I, I, I um, separate myself from him or I just stop holding his hand because I think I can handle it myself, I, can, I, I am learning to hate that feeling. And to think that the feeling that I have when I am in that right walk with him, when I know that his spirit is leading and guiding me, I love that. And do you know that in heaven, that never goes away because we will be with him forever. We will be with him. And in hell, we're separated from him forever. 
So we're all going to have an eternal life. We all are going to have an eternal life. But again, this is why today's lesson is so critical because you've seen it. You either this way or it's this way. Yep, I know. And so that's what we've talked about. You know, that this lady, she said, I just threw in the towel. I mean, she just made it so clear. I said, no. Look at Jesus. He never threw in the towel with these religious men. You don't give up until she gives her last breath. You still keep trying. So... All right, then when hearing what Jesus, that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert of the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like to it. You love your neighbor as yourself. And if your church, many, I mean, I heard that so many times, it's like, that was like something they had to read every week, and then, you know, and then they would read, and, and on these two laws hang all the, all the laws of the prophets, you know, and I didn't know what that meant, but boy, I sure do know. Do you realize he said the greatest commandment Commandment. That means this is what he expects. Not if you feel like it, if you want it. I'm suggesting, no, this is what I command. If anybody says that, that God isn't firm, I heard that, I don't quite know, I don't quite understand what he expects of me. Well, I beg to differ because I think he is very clear on what he expects. And this commandment, he said, I want you to love me with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then I want you to get your eyes off you and onto someone else. There, that's it. And if you, all the other commandments are going to take care of themselves, all the other issues. You love me with all of your heart, soul, and mind. I'm telling you, churches won't divide. Churches won't split. Churches won't have differences. You'll have differences, but you'll come together and you'll work together because Jesus said, I want them to get along. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, everything else will fall into place. There won't even be issues. I mean, it's kind of like when someone asks me, okay, what, what do you think? Can we lose our salvation or not? Or when I get questioned about, you know, well, you know, this whole predestination election thing. You know, I'm to the point now where I, th- I say to them, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You know what? Those things don't even become an issue. It's really true. The things that split us, wouldn't split us if we would just love him with all. And the key word is what? All. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Then while the Pharisees were gathering together, Jesus asked them, okay, now he's going to flip it. And he's going to say, all right, I'm going to ask you a question. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? (laughs) They didn't. There was no question. Oh, son of David, they replied. Remember, they love that Old Testament. They love Abraham. They love Moses. They, David is their man. Oh, yeah. Christ is the son of David. And so Jesus said, all right, now you think about this. How is it then 
And you know, because David wrote this, and you, you take pride in the fact that you know this so well. What does this mean anyway? When David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how in the world then can you be so sure that he's David's son? Oh, no, they didn't have a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. That was, that was quite the question. Now, we know the answer, and they would have known the answer, too, if they would have known who and accepted who he was. If they would have accepted him for the Messiah, the Christ, <clears throat> the one that was promised, and even though they were exposed and they realized that he was talking about them and they really down deep knew it was, but they just didn't want to surrender to it. That would have been, and Jesus knew that it would have been such an easy, it would have been such an easy question to answer if they would have believed, but it is an impossible question to answer if you don't believe he is who he is. And why is it easy? Because we believe that the that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords left heaven to become a man so that he physically could go to the cross and shed human blood for you and I. Jesus was 100% man for 33 years, and he came from the line of David. Yes, he was the son of David. He had to come humanly through a particular human line. And yet David knew who he was and why he addressed him as Lord. And the reason why David knew, and you and I know, is because he's 100% God. Even when we was, he was 100% man, he never lost who he was. He was still God. And so, yes, 100% man, yes, that's why he was the son of David. 100% God, that's why he's Lord over David and Lord over you and I. Great lesson. Just exactly so. Anyway, hope you consider these things. Think about it as we're moving into this holy week and um, into this Lent season because this was one powerful lesson. So heaven is a real place. Hell is a real place. But I'm telling you, when you know you're one of the few that have found it, we should be dancing all day. So have a good week.